Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm Dan Rundy. This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here today with my friend Christos Makridis. Christos is a digital fellow with the initiative on the digital economy at MIT. He's also a research assistant professor at the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. He's a non-resident fellow at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University and a non-resident fellow at the Institute for Religious Studies at Baylor University. Christos recently published an article entitled, New Research Shows Religious Liberty Drives Human Flourishing and Why This Matters Now More Than Ever. Christos's article describes how religious liberty isn't just fluff, there's strong quantitative evidence supporting the view that it has a causal effect on human flourishing. The article also describes how religious freedom is an integral prerequisite for democratic governance, aids the process for civic engagement and women's empowerment, and reduces the potential for public and political corruption. Christos, that's a lot of things that religious freedom can support, so I'm really glad you're here. I'm very excited to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me. Can we first start with a simple question? What is religious liberty, and how long has the concept of religious liberty existed? Well, thank you so much, Dan. It's awesome to be on with you. Thank you for doing these podcasts. Even before the pandemic, it's really educational and it helps translate a lot of the research that gets done so that it's in a more engaging form and just an accessible form. So I really applaud all that. In terms of what is religious liberty, I think sometimes in academia, we have a tendency to make things overly complex. And I think the answer to this is just pretty simple. It's got two components. One is that religious liberty is about the freedom to choose what you believe. But the second component, which I think is oftentimes overlooked, is that it's also the freedom to worship as you see fit. And that worship component is very important because oftentimes people will say, well, you can believe what you want. We're not forcing you to believe something. Only, I mean, certain countries do. I mean, China, they really are trying to re-educate certain people and force people. But other countries, they're not forcing you to think something, but they are implicitly forcing you in that if you do express yourself in public or you express yourself in a university or wherever it is, then you get marginalized. And so I think it's all about the freedom to not only think internally, but also to express in outward form what you believe. And last thing I'll say here, and I'm sure it'll come up over the course of our conversation, but everybody has a religion. It's just a matter of what religion is it? So if your view of the world is one that there is no God, that is still a worldview. And that's why I oftentimes think about worldview as opposed to religion, because religion sometimes gets institutionalized behind the Catholic Church or whatnot, but is really about what do you actually believe? And that's your worldview. You know, Christos, it's really interesting. My cousin was a Franciscan priest. I was very, very close to him. He was much older than me. He's my mother's cousin, but I call him my cousin. I traveled all over the world with him. And I was at a dinner party one time, and I got into a very unpleasant argument with someone who was a militant atheist. And I was very upset about it. And I called him and he said, well, it's a worldview, just like having a religious worldview. And so I think that's a really interesting way of describing it. 
How long has this idea been around of religious liberty? Because it seems to me it's taken some centuries, I think, to kind of construct it. There was state-imposed religion. In some ways, you could argue the Chinese Communist Party is trying to impose a specific worldview on its people. And in the Middle Ages, there were state-sanctioned religions, and there are some societies that still have state-sanctioned religions. Can you talk about how did that evolve over time, and what's the thinking about it now? No, it's so true. When you go back to ancient Greece, for example, they had their pagan gods, and it wasn't really acceptable to believe different things. Or in Rome, and there is the view of Caesar as God. Obviously, certain countries that were more homogeneous would have people having a little bit more similar views. But as territories expanded, as people were assimilated into different countries and different territories, organized religion and then governance had to come to some reconciliation. And I suppose that it wasn't really until more recent times that this concept of democratic governance and how do we live out in this world where there's a lot of different views and we need to be able to get along. That said, I don't think it's a totally new concept. You look at Byzantium, for example, and Constantinople, and while Christianity was the religion at that time, their governance structure was still one that allowed people to believe different things. It's just that at the end of the day, they still had a national religion, kind of like there is a national language, and like English is a spoken language in the United States, but obviously people speak lots of different languages. So I think it's not a new concept, but there certainly has been a greater acceptance that we need to be able to get along. And part of that is just fueled by the fact that people are traveling across the world. And so the need to figure out mechanisms that facilitate the exchange of ideas and getting along with one another, that need has heightened as globalization and as transportation has become so pervasive in the modern economy that we live in. So would you say that the arrival of the United States as a country, was that an innovation in the concept of religious liberty? United States certainly, I I think, was one of the most obvious manifestations of this. I don't know my history well enough to be able to say whether other countries were on the precipice of it or not. I think in some ways it took a big step forward. I think there had been at least two centuries or more of religious conflict in Europe. The founding of the United States as a place, different colonies were started by different religious groups. The Pennsylvania was started by the Quakers. Maryland was started by Catholics. I can't remember exactly every other colony which (laughs) started each one, but I figured that's pretty good for a Friday morning. But I think that that was part of the deal. I do think, yes, there were precursors to this. I also think the Dutch colony in New York, there's a book called Island at the Center of the World, which had a lot of various forms of liberty, including religious liberty in the Dutch colony in New Amsterdam. I think that had a lot to do with it as an innovation. And I think the United States helped move the concept of religious liberty along. So let's come to your, some of your claims in your article. It was published in Real Clear Religion, but you also published something in a more academic article as well. So where does this article live if someone wants to go read this? Yeah, so the full academic article is published in a journal called PLOS One, which is a general social sciences as well as hard sciences. They cover a lot of different disciplines. One of the reasons that I wanted to publish it in something that is so general and reaches all these different audiences was so that it's easily accessible. You can download it freely, whereas a lot of other academic journal articles require a subscription through your university. And so this is something that I think touches everybody's life. So want to be freely downloadable. But the Real Clear Religion article was more of an exposition in a short 700-word, 800-word version, just takes the, the main highlights from it. But yeah, the full paper with all the tables and figures and robustness exercises, we'll probably get into this a tiny bit more, but it's like this concept of how religious liberty and human flourishing are related is obviously so complex because there's many different factors at play. And so 
in the real clear religion piece, I don't get into all the different robustness exercises of what I control for, the different types of statistical methodologies that I use, instrumental variables or difference and difference. And although those are in the full paper, so you kind of get a snapshot of it in the RCR piece. And then if you want to sit down for like 30 minutes and read it in more detail. Don't make it a Hulu night. Read your academic piece instead. Who needs to watch The Crown <laughs> another time, right? <laughs> yes, in just edifying content. Friday night, man. I'm going to read your paper. It's an excellent piece. You're a serious, serious economist. I wanted to have you on. You're an up-and-coming economist. You have a really creative mind. You've taken on some really interesting issues. I think it's great that you've taken this issue on. And we need smart people like you taking on interesting issues like this. And because I do think at political freedom and economic flourishing, I do agree with your premise. And that is why I wanted you on, because I'm buying what you're selling, as the young people say, right? So can you explain how you chose this topic? How did you come up with this as a research topic? I think there's a lot of academics that sometimes struggle to find out what to research. And we really just need to open our eyes and just like look in the world. There are so many big vaccine challenges that need solutions. And so if we're just aware of what's going on, not only in the United States, but also internationally, there's more research questions that we can possibly handle. And so I had been signing up to a newsletter by an organization called Voice of the Martyrs that was sharing the experiences of many religious minorities, specifically Christians throughout the world. And I would see case after case that is just horrendous. Like somebody's known as a Christian in a village and somebody just goes and burns their house down or somebody just walks into their house with a machete and starts attacking on this mind boggling, crazy, things. And so I was thinking, okay, I'm not the type of person that would be super well suited to go internationally on a rescue mission or into Peace Corps or into something like that. But I'm an extremely good writer. I know how to synthesize content. I have a lot of technical expertise. I know how to put all these things together. And I'd already been working with this data from Gallup. I'm a senior advisor with Gallup and work with their World Poll, with their Gallup panel, with their U.S. Daily Poll. So I thought, I already have this data on my computer. Why don't I just try to put this to use? And then all I had to do was figure out how do we measure religious liberty properly? I reached out to a few people and got some tips and some dead ends. And then all you need is one good end to work out for a paper. And so I found this data set called the Varieties of Democracy that was put together by a bunch of political scientists. And what do you know? It's got a really good measure of religious liberty that is time varying, which means that I can track the religious liberty of a country over time as opposed to a given point in time once and for all. And that within country variation is quite important because you don't want to be comparing United States and Venezuela or United States and Iran. You want to be comparing United States over time with itself because that's a much more accurate comparison. There are more than just like one or two other factors that differentiate Iran and the United States. So the cross-sectional comparisons are not going to be valid. And so really what brought me to this research question was seeing the horrific things that are going on internationally, I mean, even sometimes in the United States, and to say, what can I do about it? And as a thinker, researcher, entrepreneur, one of the things I can do is just put to use my talent at quantitative analysis and writing and disseminating ideas. And that manifested in the form of this research article and in some of the press pieces that I've done. My wife is half Armenian and her grandfather was orphaned in the Armenian Genocide. So the issue of persecution of Christians is something my family takes very personally. But I think the concept of any religious minority being harassed or persecuted or killed is something that we should all stand up against. And people should be able to profess their faith and live out their faiths freely in a liberal society, liberal in the European concept of liberal society. So I feel very strongly about this. 
you claim that religious liberty is an integral prerequisite for democratic governance, aids the process for civic engagement and women's empowerment, and reduces the potential for public and political corruption. That's a lot of claims, and that's a lot of stuff for religious liberty to deliver. Can you tell us how you came to those conclusions? Yeah, so this paper is built off of a combination of the varieties of democracy data set, which allows me to see for about 154 countries over time, an index of religious liberty. I can go into some details about how they collect this data. They have many more data points beyond religious liberty. They have the ones about women's empowerment. They have ones about democratic governance. They've got all these different indices. There's something like 100 different sub-indices. So what these political scientists have put together is truly remarkable, and it's being used in many different applications beyond the paper that I use. And then I combine that with the data from Gallup and their World Poll. Starting in 2006, they started surveying thousands of individuals in many different countries. And so the full sample is over a million observations, and I can see demographic characteristics, I can see the person's self-identified religion, religious affiliation, the country that they live in, the year, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I estimated were a series of statistical models that relate human flourishing with religious liberty. One of the important things that I was doing in these statistical models was controlling for factors across countries so that I'm not comparing Iran with the United States because we wouldn't want to say, well, religious liberty is driving human flourishing because the United States has greater human flourishing than in Iran. Of course, that wouldn't be a reasonable statistical comparison because Iran has many other things that are not working in its favor, an economy that's in shambles, totalitarian government, et cetera, et cetera. And so I control for lots of different factors, including economic freedom. And so I was using Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom. I also used a couple of different indices of economic freedom to show robustness that it's not as if it's being driven by the fact that I'm measuring economic freedom in a certain way. And I also used a lot of data from the World Bank, which allows me to control for GDP growth, the unemployment rate, the share of people in the services sector, the share of people in the agricultural sector. Anyway, so I could go on and on about all these different... Let me stop you though. So I'm buying your methodology, but why don't we, for folks who aren't going to look at the statistics, let's qualitatively talk through why liberty might help each of these things. Let's start with public political corruption. So corruption is a form of lying and stealing. So let's agree that all religions teach lying and stealing are bad things. So I would assume that religious leaders and people who are trying to follow, however imperfectly, religious teachings are going to look unkindly upon public and political corruption because they're forms of lying and stealing. Is that a fair way to think about it? No, exactly right. And I think there's two reasons. You hit on the first reason perfectly. The second big reason is that when there is not religious freedom, you get an alignment between the church or whatever that institutionalized organization is. And it's really important for people to remember this can happen for any institutionalized organization. It could be the Catholic Church. It could be a mosque. It could be anything. It could be a totally secular organization as well. And indeed, many of the forms of ideology that we see and we don't love seeing in the world is just because people got power hungry and they teamed up with the government. So what religious liberty does is it injects greater competition of ideas into the system so that people have the freedom to choose. And that means that power gets more decentralized. And as a result, there's less of an opportunity for certain leadership, whether it's in the church or not, to align themselves with government leaders. And so I think this concept of competition and allowing these people the freedom to choose is something that also, like as a Christian, I want competition. I don't want people just to blindly follow. And that wouldn't even be free will. So I think competition is key. Having multiple church options, having multiple religious perspectives is useful in the sense of kind of the, if I can describe it, the competition of ideas or the competition of worldviews. 
How about this? How about women's empowerment? Some people will say, well, I can't agree with that. I don't believe that increasing religious liberty, there are probably some people who would argue that that's not the case. Make the case for why religious liberty supports women's empowerment. Well, empirically, it's something that gets borne out in the data, but I think the logic behind it is that whenever we make a claim, we have to dig down to the root cause. So what is women empowerment about? It's about individuals having choices, individuals having the freedom to go and work if they want to work. And so what sometimes constrains that decision? So if the root issue is the ability to choose freely, to choose things for your marriage, to have bargaining power in relationships, to be able to set up a business, what are some of the things that constrain that freedom? Well, when you look, for example, in the Middle East, in Iran, and some of these countries that women are just forced to go along with whatever the husband is saying, they most of the time rationalize it by saying, in order for you to be an obedient wife, in order for you to live out your calling, it means you have to do X. And so when you have a marketplace of ideas where maybe multiple religions allowed and people are able to choose and the state isn't mandating something, it gives people that way out to say, no, I actually don't believe that. And I trust that if I make the decision to say no, that I will have the physical, emotional, social space in order to live my life. And then the best ideas will be the ones that play out in reality and the ones that succeed. Christos, how about democratic governance? Why does religious liberty help democratic governance? So I'm going to copy and paste what you said on the public corruption component and say that democratic governance is not cultivated when there is corruption, when there's alignment between government and other subsidiary groups that are trying to advance an agenda. Moreover, the part that is unique that I'll just add really quickly is that there's more civic participation. There's more of a sense of, oh, I see myself in government because if I fundamentally disagree with the state-sponsored religion and I don't feel like it's free to express myself, I'm going to be scared, maybe not physically, but at least socially to express myself in the voting booth and you name it. I mean, going on TV and expressing myself, whatever it might be. So I think for democratic governance to succeed, people need to feel that they can express themselves fully, not only formally, but also informally in different sectors of the economy. Okay, I think this is really, really interesting. Okay, so I would argue, and I think you would agree, that much of the West So the United States, Europe, let's call them OECD countries, are increasingly what I would describe as secularized. I almost describe it as almost a less tolerance for religion in the public square, or they're just less religious societies, especially among elites. So why should non-religious people care about religious liberty? This is a fundamental, like, I think one of the reasons everybody should care about this is because it's about the freedom to express your worldview. So everybody has a religion. There is something that we care about in our life. And if we define religion, I think sometimes people create ad hoc definitions. Well, let's say a religion is uh, Christian, Islam, you name it. But really, when you boil down to what is religion, it's about what do you value in the world? And that comes down to your worldview. And so just like in Iran, it's not okay to be an atheist. You get persecuted if you're a Christian, if you're an atheist. And in China, for example, the CCP is persecuting the Uyghur Muslims immensely. So it's not just about being Christian or not Christian. It's about being able to express yourself regardless of what you believe. And this empirical evidence suggests that the countries that allow people to express themselves freely in the form of their worldview, in the form of their religion, are the ones that are going to flourish and are going to have more creativity. Because how can you start a business if you can't even decide what to think, how to express yourself? And so really, this goes back to your earlier question of it being a prerequisite to all these good things. If you don't have the option to decide how to think, none of these other things are going to ever happen. 
Let me just add one more thing, Christos. If you think about global development, I spend a lot of my time working in developing countries. Africa has a billion people, non-China Asia, let's say the ASEAN countries, for example, or South Asia or Central Asia. Not all of these countries, but many of these countries have very long-standing religious traditions that are central truths of the lives of these people and are ways in which orient the societies. And there's oftentimes religious diversity in these societies. Latin America, I would argue, is somewhat more following the trend of sort of the West of becoming more secularized, but it still also is somewhat a little bit more religious than, say, the United, you know, anyways, it's up for a discussion. But the point is, if you are working in global development or if you're working in international affairs and you're not cognizant of the fact that sort of the central orienting truths of the people you're working with function based on religion and that religious leaders have an important central role in these societies, you're missing something profoundly important. There was a book that was published by CSIS in 1994, 26 years ago, called Religion, the Missing Dimension of Statecraft. I hosted a 25th anniversary event at CSIS last year on this because I think for our elites in the United States, as I said, I think we're, the elites in the United States, whether in Washington or New York, are increasingly secularized. And it's a very touchy, uncomfortable topic sometimes for folks to take on because it feels like you're going to step on some landmines. So I really credit you, Christos, for taking on this really interesting idea. I thought your arguments are bracing in the paper. I think it's really interesting. You did serious academic using economic and statistical analyses. I think it's fantastic. So Christos, if someone wants to read your paper, let's just give you one more chance to plug. You have a website. What's your website if people want to go to your website? My website is www.christosmacridis.com, which is spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S-M-A-K-R-I-D-I-S.com. But you can easily Google me. I've got a Twitter, C.A. Macridis, even an Instagram now. I'm trying to embrace social media. But no, really, just trying to make research accessible and actionable. Because at the end of the day, if research isn't influencing the way that we make decisions and the way that organizations and governments make decisions, what are we doing it for? So, Christos, I congratulate you. I think it's great. This was a great topic. I love the paper. I love the analysis. It got me thinking. Whether you agree or disagree with them, I encourage you to follow Christos's work. Read this paper. He's a really sharp guy. He's got a big future in economics and public policy. So, Christos, congratulations. Great work, buddy. And let's stay in touch. Thank you so much, Dan. Looking forward to it and uh, appreciate your time. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 